Thanks for pressing play. We live at a time when discerning what's right and wrong is getting more complex, not less. And our choices can have profound long-term implications, of course, both positive and negative, often in ways that we can't foresee. So today we go deep on why ethics are more important than ever and why they are more than just common sense. We examine how we apply an ethics lens to critical areas of our world today, topics that many people shy away from, like online bullying, sexual harassment, uh, C-19 vaccines, free speech, masks, when and how to hold companies and CEOs and executives accountable, why do we allow corporate criminals like Wells Fargo and Boeing to keep doing what they do, and most importantly, how business leaders can lead with ethics, ethics that are tethered to core principles, and much more. Our guest is the legendary Dr. Susan Leoto. She is the author of a new bestseller called The Power of Ethics, How to Make Good Choices in a Complicated World. And Dr. Leoto is also an ethics advisor to major corporations and institutions. She teaches ethics at Stanford and serves as the chair of the London School of Economics Political Science Council. This is a fascinating and, dare I say, even fun conversation that will matter to anyone who cares about making our world a different place. Pay special attention to the unexpected parallel between Dr. Leoto's approach and Harvard top astronomer Dr. Avi Loeb's point of view on transparency in science. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. We are an award-winning dialogue podcast for people with a different mind, people who value authentic dialogue over asinine sound bites and overly edited interviews. <laughs> My friends at NetSuite are the number one provider of cloud ERP. Check out netsuite.com slash different and learn how to build a legendary platform for your business. Data has never been more important than it is right now. My friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Check out splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And if you like content like this, you'll love Category Pirates, our new newsletter. Go to lockhead.com and get yourself subscribed. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Doctor, why aren't ethics just common sense? The world has just gotten too complicated. Right now, you know, it used to be that we, we grew up with fairy tales and there was the Wicked Witch and there was Cinderella and everything seemed pretty black and white and clear and either somebody was good or bad. But in today's world, you know, good and bad are all mixed. Uh, we're in this gray zone and um, things that things can be used for the good, like social media, and they can also be used for harm, like bullying on social media or spread of disinformation. So we're in a very complicated world um, and the stakes are so much higher than they used to be. You know, it used to be that uh, to take that example of bullying, it might happen in a playground and then a child could leave the playground but very hard to leave the internet, very hard to leave even somebody's Facebook group. So I think largely because the world has just gotten so complicated and technology and all the forces driving it aren't really common sense for a lot of people. Hmm. That's interesting. 
We recently had on uh, the wonderful author Martin Lindstrom, who's got a, a new book out called The Ministry of Common Sense. And he's, as you might know, he's very uh, insightful and, and creative and funny and fun. And ever since I had that conversation with him, and it's sort of one of my pet peeves anyway, you know, like, I think for me, it, it started with the um, the warning on the cup of coffee that says, you know, this coffee is extremely hot. Don't pour it on your crotch, you know, <laughs> <laughs> where it was like, all of a sudden it's like, we, do we really have to say that? Yeah. You know, I was looking, I was looking at, we have an outdoor heater and, uh, um, sometimes I like to work in, in our garden and yesterday it was a little cold. So I had the heater on, but I wanted to be outside. And so this outdoor heater on the top of it, it says, do not cover on, on the front of the heater. It's like, and I thought of Martin and then I think about you and, and all of your work. And it's like, uh, I know one of your core tenets is, is, um, to have ethics. You have to have principles mm-hmm. and shouldn't more of what is ethical be obvious or is it just that our world has gotten so complex that it's not obvious anymore? Well, I think some of it is obvious. And I think, uh, and I have the same response you do, by the way, to think to labels like that. And you sort of wonder who do they think they're talking to? And what's worse is that it's clear that it's only there to protect against liability. But I think some of the things today truly are not obvious. Like we might look at something like TikTok and say, what could be the harm? It's just these little videos But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, ultimately mental health issues or teenagers copying behaviors that we wouldn't want them copying or things like that actually happen. So so things aren't as obvious, but some behaviors certainly are as obvious and we shouldn't have to be having big, complicated discussions about them. It shouldn't be that complicated that, you know, we don't spread disinformation. (laughs) Amen. Hallelujah, sister. (laughs) Some things ethically seem like we come to consensus fairly quickly. Uh, and I'll give you an example we've seen recently with, uh, <laughs> this is our dog Bean, and uh, he loves to be in the studio with me because we get some man time, and uh, sometimes he likes to hang out with our guests too. So <laughs> Looks like he has a really good life. He does. He's, uh, he's amazing, and he's about six months old now, and we rescued him. And um, anyway, it's a longer story, but the net of it, Professor, is uh, I'm, not sure who, I'm not sure who's rescuing who around here. <laughs> Um, anyway, so back to my question around vaccines, when government officials came out and sort of described who was going to get them first, I didn't hear a huge public outcry about that being an immoral or unethical decision. It sounded like the sort of how they came up with the criteria made a lot of sense. People in the age demographic, healthcare workers, et cetera, people on the front line, you know, the sort of the chronology of who was going to get it and in what sequence seemed to make very good sense and seemed to be ethical. So A, is that true? And if it is, how do, how do we make decisions that are sort of commonly believed to be ethical versus ones that aren't? What a great question. So I think it's true that the, where some of the experts ended up was fairly widely accepted. So people of a certain age, because the science has shown that they were by far at the highest risk and were trying to save as many lives as possible, certainly the frontline workers, I mean, true heroes, and starting with, you know, the medical caregivers who are actually in the COVID boards, but also hopefully very soon teachers and grocery store workers and all the people who are delivering everything that we depend on. So, you know, again, true heroes. 
I think all of that made sense to people. I'm not sure that the experts got there so quickly. And certainly there have been discussions in other places about, you know, should we actually have started with 40 and 50 year olds who are out in the workforce and who are trying to bring children to school? So there have been different conversations um, and and some of it is culturally uh, sensitive. But I think I think you're right that that was pretty widely accepted because it made sense to people. I'm not sure some of the other things we have so much intuition about. So things like where do we draw the line on what kind of speech is acceptable on social media and who should get to decide? Should it be Mark Zuckerberg? Should it be the government? Uh, Should it be the users of Facebook? Should it be some independent body? Uh, So I think that's less intuitive. Yeah, it's interesting. There's this term we hear called hate speech. Mm. And people use the term as if it's an is, like the way gravity is an is. And of course, hate speech is an interpretation. And so to your point, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, so I'm against hate speech. That sounds like you would be. But then to your point, uh, Professor, Who decides what's hate speech? (laughs) No, exactly. Who decides what's hate speech? I mean, and again, we always have a situation where at the extremes, things are clear. So extreme versions of hate speech or inciting violence, which is a term we've heard a lot recently, that there again, to your earlier point, we get pretty widespread agreement. But then we get into down the spectrum, what I'll call offensive speech. And that is actually allowed on social media platforms. It actually is allowed on free speech, even under the First Amendment. And so, you know, where do you draw the line between offensive speech and hate speech? There is sort of a gray zone there. Well, (laughs) and this may sound insane, but, you know, why stop now? I'm a fan of offensive speech where appropriate. You know, so I will tell somebody to fuck themselves on, on, on LinkedIn. You know, I had a guy the other day come right at me. He disagreed with something I posted, which is fine, by the way. I am all about a civil uh, discussion and civil discourse. And if anybody wants to disagree with me, if they're thoughtful about it, let's have at it. Absolutely. And when I get into a conversation with people on social media, Professor, I try super hard to say, you know, please hear what I'm about to say with a smile. Or some, I, I try to right. do something, particularly if I'm going to say something that's counter or really engage in a discussion, a nuanced discussion, which is very difficult on social media. But I find, at least for me on LinkedIn, it's possible. Anyway, this guy came right at me. This is wrong. You're stupid. You're posting click, clickbait and all this stuff. And I just said, hey, Jimmy, you're a POS. And he came back at me and, and then I told him to fuck off. <laughs> First of all, I agree with you that LinkedIn's a great platform, but, and I also agree with you about offensive speech. I mean, we need to be able to have diverse speech. We need to be able to let people express themselves. We also need to be able to listen. And so I I love what you just said about, you know, listen with a smile, because part of that I interpret, and please tell me if I'm wrong, but I interpret that as actually really listen to what I'm telling you. Like, don't judge me in advance. Don't listen to what you think I should be saying. Don't listen to what you want me to be saying. Listen to what I'm actually saying. So I I love the way you put it. I haven't heard it put that way before. Mm, Thank you. I I try very hard to be a curious person. That's a stance I enjoy. It feels natural. 
Um, so I'm, I'm authentically curious about people, in, in, in this case, you. And I also, one of my favorite expressions is, if you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know you have one? <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, today we call changing your mind flip-flopping. We used to call it learning. Right. I think one of the things about ethics that I, at least in the way I see it, it and that's different today, is that the world is changing so fast. And that complexity I referred to earlier is evolving so quickly that we need to be monitoring instead of sort of holding our nose and leaping or making a decision and being sure that we're absolutely right. So I don't call it flip-flopping. I call it staying grounded in reality. Because if you're monitoring the way reality is changing, your decision-making or what you think of past decisions is going to evolve as well. There are positions and, and ideas that I thought I believed in at 20 that I certainly don't believe in today. And frankly, there are some that I believed in a year ago that I have quote unquote evolved on or maybe not completely changed my position, but decided to conduct myself differently and take a set of actions that, that I might not otherwise have taken based on what I've learned. And isn't that what we want to do? Or don't we want to be able to say that every year of ourselves? I think that's absolutely what we want to be able to say in general. And it's absolutely what we want to be able to say in terms of our ethics, because the world mm. is just changing. And, you know, one of the things I always say to my students is that we can do ethics outside of reality all we want. We can cherry pick the convenient reality. We can create our own la-la land. But at the end of the day, reality is going to come back to bite. And one thing that's very hard for people to see is that reality is changing. So our ethical responsibility is to keep up with reality. Uh, and that means that, you know, we know things today about social media. We know things today about gene editing that we didn't know before for the better um, and in some cases for the worse. And so if we're going to be seizing opportunity and we're going to be mitigating risk, we need to stay grounded in reality. Yes. Now, one of the important things you underscore in your work is if we're going to, if I could put it this way, tell me if you want me to think about it or have a different context. But if I want to conduct myself in an ethical way, one of the core things we need to have is principles. And I often use the phrase, uh, and it's one of the things I say about the people I respect the most in the world, is that they are deeply tethered to a true north. And I identify that as a set of principles. Exactly. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, there's this situation going on in our community that I want to uh, road test with you. So I live in Santa Cruz, California, uh, right on the Pacific coast. And so water activity is huge here, surfing and, and, and so forth. Well, there's this type of surfing uh, doctor called foil boarding. And it's taking off now. It's a new category of surfing. And the board rides above the wave. And there, there's, the, there's this metal foil. And it looks like it, it's, and it's cut real sharp. It's essentially like um, a keel. And it looks almost like two swords at the bottom of the board. And so the, the, the rider is on the board, which is a foot or two out of the water. And the foil is cutting through the wave. And it's very difficult, but I've never done it, but apparently it's an incredible experience. So people have decided to start foil boarding, boarding in Santa Cruz with 250 other people in the water. And if you fall on a foil board backwards and you fire it forwards at another surfer, you're firing a guillotine at their head. Now, I was talking to a dear friend of mine 
who's very active in the surf community here. And I said, why isn't this obvious? No foil boarding in Santa Cruz. And if you do it, it's a $50,000 fine and two years of community service, period, end of discussion. And he said, no, no, every time I talk to a foil boarder, every time I talk to community leaders, I get a whole other thing. And I said, how is this not obvious? And he said, because they believe in freedom. And they say, the ocean is free. I can do whatever I want in the ocean. And so how through an ethics lens do you decide if foil boarding is what we're doing or not doing in Santa Cruz? Well, I love your example, not least because speaking of learning, I had never heard of this and I have no talent whatsoever in surfing, um, never even tried it. So I have to say, I'm, I'm going to give you an unbiased or at least an unskilled answer. Um, what happens with principles, first of all, I do um, think that we each establish our own principles. I, I would never dream of telling anybody what their principles should be. So, uh, and people choose different ones that are important to them. And, you know, you have corporate examples like Uber in the early days was growth and profit. Most people these days I know have health and safety as one of their principles. And most people I know today have some form of freedom, autonomy, or independence is one of their principles. And what we see increasingly today, particularly in a high tech world is that we're not and the reason why ethics are not so common sense is that we're navigating conflicting principles. Now, you've given a fantastic example of how you don't need things to be tech turbocharged to have conflicting principles. You know, and but the other thing I would say is that I, I, I'm sort of on the rampage to banish binary thinking to say, you know, you can foil board or not. And what I would say is that it's not because it's in the ocean that you're not harming other people. So health and safety, you know, we always have a responsibility to think about the impact of our freedom on other people, whether it's wearing a mask and social distancing, whether it's drunk driving, whether it's what we put out on the internet or whether it's something like this. So I think everybody has that responsibility. But what I would say is, can't we find a solution that is non-binary? You know, you can't foil board on a public beach, but maybe you can foil board at certain times of day in a place where there are only foil boarders who are willing to put themselves at that risk, you know, if you have certain kinds of protective, you know, gear. So we get ourselves into this yes, no, black, white, one side of the wall or the other binary thinking, and we never get to seizing opportunity and mitigating risk. And so I would say absolutely not on a public beach with hundreds of innocent people who never asked to be part of that and who never thought that a normal risk of going to the beach in Santa Cruz, California, was to have this weapon potentially fired at them. On the other hand, you know, if there's a way for consenting, truly consenting foil boarders to do this in a limited space at, during certain hours, and why not with some protective equipment like the equivalent of wearing helmets on motorcycles, you know, maybe that's something to consider. It's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, there's a wave I love to surf in Hawaii, and it's um, uh, intermediate sort of bordering on more advanced wave, you know, condition dependent, of course. And uh, it's a, a very popular and windy spot. And so windsurfers and kiteboarders love this wave as well. And interestingly enough, if it's windy, generally, you don't want to be surfing on a surfboard because the wind Fs up the wave. And so here you have this coveted spot by both surfers and wind sailors and kiteboarders, but 
condition dependent is better for one than the other. And, but so the question is, how do we manage the in-between zone to your point? It, Cause it's non-binary, right? Mm-hmm. And I forget the exact rule, but if my memory's right, professor, the rule at this wave is if there are 10 surfers or more in the water, kiteboarders, windsurfers can't be in the water. And the minute it goes to single digit surfers, the thinking being there'll be less surfers in the water as it gets more windy, then it's game on. And so the, everyone else with, with uh, sails can come out. And you know what? It's it's interestingly self-policing. My sense is in Santa Cruz, that wouldn't work, or certainly right. at the main breaks in Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to use it as an example. And so I, I found it interesting. It's a great example. Because for me, if you ask me, I'm a huge proponent of personal freedom. But if you take drunk driving as a great example, I think there's a very clear binary decision. If I want to get drunk every day, all day, that's my prerogative. It's my life. If I can, if that's what I want to do, I can do it. It may not be the greatest choice, but that's my choice. It's affecting me. The minute I get into uh, my car after spending the entire day drinking, now I'm affecting you. And so from a principal's perspective, I think ethics change when you move from making a decision that it is, is principally affecting yourself to one that's affecting others. That's Absolutely the way I look at it. And I use the term in the book and in my work, stakeholders. But the big difference today, you know, about when we look at what stakeholders means is that we can affect people we will never meet. We can affect people we can't identify. We can even affect people in future generations. So an example of that is the, you know, the rogue scientist in China, Hu Jianquei, who was manipulating uh, the embryos of twin girls. That affects the human germline if he did what he says he did, and I'm understanding the scientists correctly. Um, so the kinds of decisions we're making today are not like you know a Jane Austen novel where there are three people in a salon and two people are married and two people are having an affair and it's not the same two people, and it's basically you know three people involved. I mean, we can put something on the internet, we never know where it's going to end up. And the upside of that is we can also have a hugely positive impact. Uh, on people the other side of the globe. We can tutor a child with a cell phone. We can see someone like, you know, Malala Yousafzai, the youngest Nobel laureate, generate all kinds of support around the globe for girls' education. So um, this this concept of who we're affecting that you're raising is really important and very different today than it has been in the past. Yes. And while this might not be a, a direct analogy, because she certainly had a massive platform, but <laughs> I can't help but say Amanda Gordon changed the world <laughs> with one poem. And it's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine about her the other day and uh, we were talking about how the number of requests for her to keynote at uh, corporate events and so forth must be completely off the hook and that she's got to be in the process of becoming the most wealthy American poet ever. <laughs> Probably right about that. She, But as you say, she had quite a platform and did quite a tremendous job. <laughs> So maybe let's go to this. You you sort of give us this wonderful lens around principles, information, stakeholders, and consequences over time. And so can we pop the hood on those four, Professor? So stakeholders is really sort of what we just talked about, which is really think more broadly about who you could affect with your decision-making. Um, consequences over time, I'll simplify it by saying, The first question I always ask is, are the consequences important and irreparable? 
And I think when we're looking at decisions, but you know, we can't spend all day, every day belaboring the ethics of everything. As you pointed out earlier, some things are common sense. Um, other things do require a lot of thinking. And then there are these cases where, you know, the consequences really are irreparable. If we don't wear a mask and we potentially expose someone to COVID, that is irreparable. Even if it's, you know, the 18-year-old we're exposing may recover, but their grandmother that they're going to be exposed to would not. Or the example that I use in the book of Boeing, it's kind of hard to believe that you have two tragic plane crashes within months of each other. Boeing can't explain either one. And yet the former CEO of Boeing is asking the president of the United States to keep flying planes. And he's not in jail. He's not fucking in jail. Absolutely right. We'll put black people caught with a small amount of cocaine in jail for 20 years. And the CEO of Boeing is not in jail. The CEO of Wells Fargo, not in jail. Right. They've had racial discrimination suit after racial discrimination suit. Nobody goes to jail. It's this is another thing I want to talk to you about is like, why are we so off morally on some of these decisions that seem so obvious when you commit these kinds of crimes? When you look across the piece at different crimes and the consequences of the crimes, it's really frightening. And as you point out, it's much worse when you look at the reality of how those laws are implemented and the racial skewing of the implementation of the laws, it's mind boggling. And it's, it's horrifying. And frankly, as somebody who spends a lot of time overseas, it's embarrassing. It's really, you know, when we look at the American judicial system, it's embarrassing. The whole corporate situation, there are situations where corporate leaders, boards and CEOs cannot be held to know everything. But there are situations where the decision making throughout the organization is so flawed. Uh, and you know, I've been arguing from the beginning that the Boeing case is not just about that MCAS software that everybody's talking about, that it's a much, much bigger uh, problem of decision-making and in particular decision-making around safety. And so, you know, to your point, we need to look at the consequences to the, pe of, to the people making the decisions in a very, very different light. Well, and if the CEO of a company that makes airplanes isn't the ultimate arbiter of is this plane safe enough that we can ship it? Like who, who the, who's the decider of when we ship the new product or not? If that isn't the CEO, when they make planes, then who the fuck is it? Well, and in the case of Boeing, it was also the FAA because the FAA was basically outsourcing the verification process to Boeing. Now, a little bit of that is understandable. The FAA doesn't have the resources to have all of the expertise in-house, but it got way out of balance. So Boeing was actually self-certifying or close to it. So the FAA is very much responsible for this, um, for the Boeing tragedies as well, in my view. And then sometimes these things happen and uh, companies act very quickly. Two examples that come to my mind were the Tylenol scare many years ago. And then there was, I don't, you're originally from the Bay Area, are you not, yes. Susan? Yes, yes, yeah. I spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. Yep. Yeah, and do you remember the Odwalla um, crisis, the, the juice? No, I don't remember the Odwalla crisis. The Tylenol is absolutely a great example because the CEO even told the legal counsel, I don't care what kind of legal exposure we're going to have, we're taking the Tylenol off the shelves. 
And at the end of the day, they took a hit for, you know, about a year or so, if memory serves, and then, you know, back. But that case has been the poster child for how to behave for, you know, for decades. Um, But tell me about the Adwala case, because I'm actually not familiar with that. Yeah. And I might be a little bit off on some of the specifics. It's been a while ago and I'm not that smart and I drink a lot, but I'll be directionally right. Um, They are a juice company. Right. And one of their differentiators was uh, the sort of smoothie kind of drinks, um, in uh, you know, that you sort of buy at a single serve at the grocery store or the, 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 the you know, local market type of thing. Anyway, one of their main differentiators was it was unpasteurized. Well, at some point, a whole bunch of people got sick and some, a few of them died. And as soon as it started to happen, they shut down production and it was, it was identical to Tylenol and they threw out their process. They went to a pasteurized process. They transformed the way they make their product. And I don't remember what they did with the families, but it was, it was identical to Tylenol in the way they behaved. And as a result, the company recovered and the brand recovered and so forth. And so my question for you in that regard is if you look at Boeing versus a Tylenol or an Odwalla, why is it some of our leaders have developed a lens, an ethical lens, and some of them just have not? So I'm not sure it's just about the leaders. I mean, Adwala sounds like a great case, and there have been others. And actually, you know, the food industry, there are a lot of different famous companies in the food industry that have been affected. Um, I write about Pret-a-Manger in the book, where there was an issue around allergies, um, and they did the same thing. They responded incredibly well. And now if you go into a Pret-a-Manger, you have allergy warnings everywhere. They've changed some of the composition. They've changed their systems and the whole thing. And and I interviewed myself, the CEO, and he, to be honest, he responded to an unsolicited email, had no idea who I was. And within 24 hours, I was speaking to him for quite a long time about the detail of how he saw the issue, how sorry they were, how much they were you know, supporting changes throughout their system and indeed in the food industry more broadly. So some people just get it right. I think Boeing, sadly, when uh, CEOs don't get it right, it's because they're still responding to some of the same forces that caused them to get it wrong in the first place. So still call it greed, call it skewed incentives, competition, uh, market pressure, all of these things that caused the rushing and the decision-making that drove to those MCAS failures and and the other problems around those two tragic accidents, they were still at play. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book as well, and and I deal with a lot in my work, is that we're very quick to try to stop a particular example of bad behavior, you know, the fraudulent accounts at Wells Fargo that you mentioned. But we don't actually dismantle all the forces that drive the spreading of that bad behavior. So whether it's pressure or unrealistic sales expectations, or greed, or social media. There's a whole sort of battery of forces that drive the spreading of unethical behavior that I've identified. If we don't dismantle the forces that drive the spreading, we're going to continue to see the problem. And it sounds to me like Odwala did exactly that. Um, Tylenol did exactly that. And, you know, and others, um, the food industry is difficult though. You know, there, there are others that have had issues of, there was in California as well. I can't remember the company, but an issue with, I think it was salmonella and spinach or lettuce or something, but by and large, they react really well. 
So if we say, okay, part of the problem is perverse incentives or misaligned incentives, right? So if we have only a profit and growth incentive, per the Uber point you made earlier, then if you're focused on just that, then you have all these ethical things that you that you get wrong. Uh, and even recently, Amazon was found to be um, not giving out the tips, right? This is this is one of the most extraordinary entrepreneurial technological innovations in the history of commerce. Right. And, and, and a company that is generally very well regarded uh, with, you know, caveats here and there or whatever, but they got exposed for this stuff. And so it's, it's, but you know, the thing is you can have growth and profit and still not have sexual misconduct rampant throughout your organization. Like Uber had under the, Oh no, you can't doctor. You can still (laughs) hand out tips. You can still have safe <laughs> food. And this is where people, you know, this idea that there's some sort of a trade-off. Maybe you do have less profit. I'm not going to say that really uh, careful ethical decision-making throughout an organization doesn't take effort. It takes effort, it takes commitment, and it does take some investment. But it is by no means supportive of growth and profit to let all of these kinds of things, particularly human mistreatment, run rampant. Well, and interestingly, sometimes there are what seem to be the ethical answer that have meaningful ramifications in the wrong direction for growth and profit. And so I guess if you say, well, part of the problem is the incentives, I understand that. But I, I don't know that we're ever going to get to a place, particularly in a uh, capitalist entrepreneurial system where... CEOs compensations, executive compensations are going to be deeply tied to things other than growth and profit. They may be tied to other things. So how you do it is uh, really important, not just that you get it done, so to speak. But it's sort of impo- it would be impossible in my mind to create a compensation plan for an executive team that dealt with, you know, what you talk about, all the stakeholders. Why don't people care about it, even if it's not part of their incentive program, right? Like sometimes doing the right thing is obvious. And if we're going to take an economic hit, I, I get it. Listen, I've been an officer and director of a whole bunch of public companies. I understand it deeply. But at the same time, we have to look at the person who brushes our teeth in the eye every day. Well, I think a lot of CEOs and a lot of boards and a lot of senior management teams really do care. And I think even within some of the companies that have sort of demonstrated reprehensible behavior, people don't go to work every day thinking that they're going to harm people or that they're that it's okay to behave unethically. But I think there, there are a couple of things that happen happens. One is it's not just about financial incentive. There's a lot of ego involved. There's a lot of arrogance involved. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, especially in today's world, numbers. How many billions of people? How many hours and how many eyeballs, how many likes? So there's a lot of that kind of driving it, irrespective of the, of the financial um, outcome. Then there's a lot of, you know, we couldn't predict this or we didn't know. So one of the four things you mentioned of principles, information, stakeholders, consequences, this idea of information. And I, you know, I hit that one pretty hard. I mean, I think in general, we all need to be mindful of the gaps in information. What is the information that we don't know today? You know, for example, we don't know what the mental health implications really are of bot therapists. So there's a lot of, you know, we have to ask that question. But beyond that, there's an awful lot of, well, you know, maybe you didn't know when you were in your Harvard dorm room, but you certainly knew at some point well before Cambridge Analytica happened, 
or maybe you didn't know, you know, uh, sort of at the very early stages of some of the design that was going on at Boeing, but you certainly had a sense that the certification process wasn't right, even if you didn't know exactly how it was going to, you know, how the implications were going to, were going to fall out. So I, you know, I push leaders pretty hard that it's not so much that you didn't know, it's whether you should have known or you could have known. So let, let's maybe go to the Facebook one. It's a controversial one, but an important one. We've obviously just come through an election season here in the United States. And I think most people, based on what we understand, it appears that Facebook, and of course other social media companies as well, but Facebook is the category king, has created this algorithm echo chamber that has created a divide in the country that has allowed other foreign actors to come in and help drive that divide, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and of course there are other factors, but, but Facebook in particular, it is pretty clear now, has created this echo chamber that has had a massive negative impact on the country, if not the world. And so it appears to me, and if this is unfair, you tell me, that they have done nowhere near enough to address this problem. And so how do you think about Facebook in this ethical situation? So first of all, I should say I'm very pro-tech uh, and very pro-innovation because part of what I said earlier about you know not being binary and about seizing opportunity and mitigating risk so we have to remember all the incredible opportunity that companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook and, and many others, many smaller companies ha have, have given the world. And Facebook, you know, for many, and we've seen this in Myanmar recently, it's their only access to the Internet. That's a whole other question. But it's still, you know, it's for many people, it's a way they can make a living. It's the only way they can communicate with family. It's the only way they can express themselves or the only way that they can actually get news and other information. So I, I don't want to dismiss in any way all the good. And I think, you know, most people go to work at Facebook trying to do the right thing. But the issue uh, that you mentioned and many others, the issue of these algorithms that have just gone out of control, we've known that that's a problem for years now. You know, this is the second major election that we've had this issue. And so, yes, I do come down very hard and say, you knew this was a problem. You know, either you don't know how your algorithms are working, in which case you better take a deep breath and press pause and figure it out before you let them potentially distort, you know, elections of the world's biggest democracy, you know, or you do know and you're letting it happen anyway. Neither situation is acceptable. And um, the other part of that is, is this issue of that we talked about with the surfers is uh, informed consent. You know, we think we're using Facebook and we kind of hear a little bit about, you know, our our newsfeed is being distorted. Various things are being distorted and we're getting put in a bubble by this social media company. So we all can take some steps and be responsible and seek news from other sources and, and do our best. But I don't think anybody quite realizes the extent to which we're manipulated, the extent to which we're exposed to addiction. Uh, and I'm not the first to point this out. And, and you know, when your when your business model is maximum number of eyeballs for a maximum amount of time, you know, speaking of skewed incentives. Yes. We sort of started here earlier in our conversation. It's a theme throughout your work is that things are not necessarily binary. And, and I think what I interpret from you, but I want to ask you directly is the gray zone in between right and wrong is expanding. The gray zone is definitely expanding. 
But that means the responsibility of people who have so much impact on the world, like some of the leaders you're talking about, is even greater to sort of navigate that gray, to really figure out what, you know, where are the opportunities, where are the risks, and, you know, how are they affecting all the people who are using their products? And what do they need to be telling all the people who are using their products? So to give you a recent example, and, you know, tell me if you disagree with this, but we've all been following Robinhood, right? You're a tech expert and a marketing expert and all that. And so I decided as, you know, part of my research, I would just look up their terms of service. 33 micro print pages. All right. Now I started my career as a corporate lawyer in a really hardcore Wall Street firm called Sullivan and Cromwell. And we were held to, you know, every last comma and period had to be perfect. I can honestly tell you, I understand exactly zero of what the implications would be for me if I engaged with Robin Hood, sort of when they could shut me down or, you know, whether there's risk of addiction, like almost like gambling or like social media addiction. I had absolutely no understanding after reading the 33 microprint pages. So I'm guessing that most of the And just to be clear, Professor, you have a law degree. There's a JD after your name. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And uh, last time I checked, you're not the stupidest person on planet Earth. (laughs) Well, and I, you know, and I used to, so, and, and not only do I have a law degree, but I, you know, I used to work on things like Goldman Sachs underwriting agreements that were 150 pages. So, so this isn't the first time I've seen microprint. And even with the effort, which most people quite rightly wouldn't dedicate before they sort of go download this app and start trading, you know, you have to really wonder. And at the end of the day, this is being used by some, not by all. It's being used by some to try to outsmart the hedge funds or to try to do sort of a tech version of Occupy Wall Street. But at the end of the day, who's getting hurt? The hedge funds are going to be just fine. It's, you know, a lot of individuals who were doing their trading for the first time or not for the first time, but, you know, sort of random, random impacts on individuals who can't afford the losses. And so this is a very interesting ethical question. So on one hand, if I sort of take a more free markets, libertarian kind of point of view and say, hey, listen, if a bunch of uh, folks on the internet want to get together on Reddit, which by the way, I don't understand Reddit. I think it's a cesspit, but that's just me. Uh, they recently just raised money at apparently six billion dollars. It's, it's, it's I, I'm just I'm with you. I don't don't fully get that, but yes. Well, to me, any place where you can be on the internet anonymous is complete bullshit. I'm accountable for what I do and say on the internet, and when I when I respond to somebody on the internet, I think to myself, if this person was standing in front of me, would I say this? And that's what I write. And so to me, if you can be anonymous, it's completely worthless. But that, that's a side point. The free market perspective would be if thousands of people want to get together on Reddit and for no other reason than to play some game, drive a stock up through the roof to um, fuck around and, and potentially damage Wall Street or just to just to be a little bit anarchist, anarchistic, is that a word? I don't know. But just just to play, just to see what they can get away with, right? I, I saw the guy who started this thing interviewed and he had no, he just sort of, you know, he just lobbed a pebble into the ocean and something happened, right? At least that's the way he presented it. And so you could take an ethical position that says, hey, we have a free market. And if this happens, if you own stock, this is just one of the risks you have to sign up for that a band of folks on the internet might just take a rogue action and you may or may not benefit or may or may not be damaged by it. 
on the flip side, you could say, well, hey, listen, you know, that's not fair. That's not right. And there need to be some guardrails here. And a group of people can't just destroy a company or destroy a, a hedge fund or whatever it is. And so we're going to put some rules and guardrails around it. And so, um, you know, some people might th- think this is black and white, but I'm just curious, how do you apply your lens to something like that? Okay. So first of all, I'm not worried about hedge funds. I'm not on the, you know, I'm not on any rampage against hedge funds, but, you know, hedge funds are expert risk managers. That's what they do all day, every day. So they can manage the risk of short selling and they can manage the risk of these kinds of very unusual situations. What I'm worried about, you know, and, and I'm not against freedom. I'm certainly not against, you know, making tools accessible to individuals, but we have a long history, you know, along the theme of Robin Hood you know, should have known. We have a long history of securities regulation that is designed to protect individual investors who are inexperienced from, you know, loss that they couldn't anticipate. Sort of to your word risk from risks that they couldn't really understand. So I'm all in favor of, you know, have a game, uh, you know, band together on Reddit or on any other platform and have at the hedge funds. That's really not what the issue is. The issue is that the individual's in my view, cannot possibly understand what they're exposing themselves to. So for some of them, it's not a big deal. You know, they've played with $100, $100 doesn't matter to them. For others, they're betting a fund that they have that's going to pay for their sister's cancer treatment or, you know, the food that they're going to put on their family's table. So all I'm arguing for, I'm not arguing against freedom and I'm not arguing in favor of greater protection of hedge funds, but I'm arguing that the company should have to be much more transparent should have to tell the users what the risks could be to them in language they can understand. So an example I use is you take a pack of cigarettes, it says smoking kills. Up to you whether you smoke them, as long as you don't expose other people to secondhand smoke. But here what's happening is innocent people are getting hurt and innocent people are potentially hurting other innocent people. They don't even realize it. So the company just needs to get over their 33 pages and tell the people who are downloading this app what they could potentially be exposed to. So great. This is awesome. So if we could keep digging, here's the problem I see there. And and to your point on the small print, many pages, when I first became an officer of a publicly traded company and had to pay super special attention to all the risk factors that we publish in our uh, financial filings, right? They're ridiculous. There's a risk factor that California might have an earthquake. There's a risk factor that our CEO might, you know, spill coffee on his face and have to take a week off. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. And it's like in California, as I'm sure you know, almost every building you walk into has a sign on it somewhere that says this facility has materials in it that are known to the state of California to cause cancer. Right. And so we have all these risk warnings everywhere and we have so many of them that we don't know which ones to pay attention to. The truth is, unless you intimately know a company, if you read their risk factors, you have no idea what the real risk factors are versus all the bullshit legalese to protect us are. And, you know, that sign in the building, we don't know if this is really a, like a, a very bad place to be or they just have to fucking put that there to cover their ass, right? And so so it, it has tilted to the insane to the point where as consumers, as customers, at least, I don't know, you tell me, but I don't pay attention to these risk factors because I know they're stuffed with everything that they could possibly imagine. 
Well, I'm sort of laughing at what you said about the the corporate documents, because as a young lawyer, I had to draft those. And it literally was anything that could possibly happen ever on earth is in those things. But because they're largely designed, as you say, legalese is to sort of, you know, bum covering, you know, we said that this could happen, you know, you, you know, you're being held to have read this prospectus. So I'm, that's why I'm arguing for really simple. What I'm arguing is to tell people what really matters to them, what really matters to somebody, uh, you know, using a platform like Robinhood is the company could need to halt trading at any time. So you might not be able to control what really matters is you could lose a lot of money. You know, that this is a high risk endeavor. This is not, you know, this is uh, trading in securities requires expertise. And if you play at it without expertise, it's a variation on the theme of gambling. Now, again, I'm not in favor of, you know, getting in the way of people's freedom. But just tell people in the same way you say, you know, like I said, smoking kills. Well, and he, here's another interesting one along these lines. There, is, there are certain class of investments in the United States of America that in order to be able to uh, make those investments, you have to be what the government calls a quote unquote accredited investor. I'm, right. I'm sure you're well aware. Mm-hmm. And do you know, uh, Professor, what the bar is now? I, I'm not sure I know anymore. I don't know, but I, I'm very familiar with the term because it started, you know, many decades ago, more than I'm prepared to admit when I was a corporate lawyer, that term came into being with this rule called 144A. Yes. And I don't know what the threshold is now, but it's it's a fairly intimidating threshold, I would imagine. It's I, I, like I say, I don't know. So but it's a million or more in uh, investable assets. And I don't know what the income level is, but, it, you know, it, to your point, it is a significant bar. And my understanding of it was the reason that law was put in place is there some highly uh, speculative investments, uh, you know, venture capital comes to mind. Where, you know, to your point, the average person might not be uh, a that knowledgeable about it. And B, it's so speculative that if you have a reasonable percentage of your holdings in something like that, you could be in a lot of trouble. And so the government says, unless you have the capacity to absorb some kind of a meaningful loss, that is to say your net worth and your income is at whatever the high levels are, you don't get to play. So one could take a position that says, oh, that's the government protecting us from ourselves. And that's a good thing. There's a big part of me, though, uh, Professor, that goes, fuck that. This is a free country. Who's the government to tell me what percentage of my assets can be in what classes? If it's a legal thing, why should I, as a person who is not, uh, doesn't have a high net worth, why should I be excluded from playing in some of the most interesting and lucrative investments? And so how do I apply your ethics lens to some issue like that? Well, I think we have, I mean, you've hit on this on a much bigger problem, which is this issue of inequality. And I love the example you're giving because it's not the obvious one. You know, we see inequality in so many aspects of society today from how the judicial system is applied. You mentioned sort of, you know, racially skewed to who is most adversely affected by COVID, even to who is most likely to accept COVID vaccines. Um, but this is a fantastic way to raise the inequality issue. And, you know, why not? But my my only argument is to make sure people understand that, you know, what they're potentially buying is super high risk and they have no control over it or super illiquid. And I think the average person, you know, just like any other thing you might do that's dangerous, you know, if you're going to go take a skydiving lesson, 
People will tell you what the big risks are. We just need to tell people in a couple of sentences, you know, once you put this money in, you can't get it out for two years. Or what, you know, you need to understand that this is incredibly high risk and maybe put it in terms the average person can understand. And this is a real sort of point of passion for me because one of the things I think is happening in society today is this very undemocratic uh, sequestering of knowledge uh, and opportunity amongst experts and controllers of innovation. And so what I'm really trying to do is to say we need to democratize the ethics. So let's democratize the opportunity. Let's democratize who gets to have a voice. And people from all walks of life should have a voice. So just like what you're saying, which is, you know, why not let somebody invest in a high-risk thing? Uh, And my answer is, sure, through the lens of transparency, tell them exactly what it could mean for them. But also, you know, I don't need to necessarily understand how an algorithm works or how to, you know, do CRISPR-Cas9 technology in order to have an opinion on the ethics of gene editing or the ethics of Facebook's algorithm any more than I need to understand how, you know, the car's combustion engine works to know that I don't want drunk driving or 12-year-olds with driver's licenses. So I think your, your point is really important in terms of a broader problem of inequality around both opportunity, but also ability to influence the ethics. And so do we, do we need regulation that says you have to communicate the risks clearly and not in all this bullshit legalese terms of service that nobody's going to read to, to your point on the cigarette package says cigarettes will kill you, right? We, I understand that. And so, and, and you would think with some things, it's obvious. Like if you go, if you're going skydiving, Hey, you could die skydiving. You're right. skydiving. Right. right. Or you're getting on Elon Musk's rocket ship. And so far, you know, you know, that could be a one way ticket. Right. So what I think is, we probably need regulation, but to your common sense point, why do we need regulation? Why is it that we, we've been talking about this for so many years that you know we don't have corporations proactively, irrespective of the law, stepping forward and saying, here are the three things that matter to you. These are the choices you have. These are the choices you don't have. And this is what we don't know that you probably want to know. Okay. Well, and and the other thing I find interesting is we're not educated around what comparative risk is. So what do I mean by that? If you and I are going to go spend the day skiing, well, you'd have to be a complete moron to know, to not know that there's some things about skiing that are clearly dangerous. On the other hand, what we don't know is how much more dangerous is skiing than driving a car or, or is it even? How much more dangerous is skiing than getting on a plane? So there's also this sort of contextual frame of reference as to, you know, what we're doing. We, we understand if we're going to go parachuting that on a risk basis, it's probably a lot higher than riding our bike. We sort of intuitively get that. But the truth is, with a lot of things, we don't really know. No, we don't really know. Um, and it's different for different people. So for me, anything involving skis would be very high risk. I have zero gift. And so, you know, on the other hand, there are members of my family who are outstanding skiers and not much is a risk, you know, other than watching out for avalanches. But one of the things I think we can focus on is where we have choice and where we don't. 
So what happened in the Reddit example is people were making choices, not realizing that the company could take away their choice, that they would be stopped from trading, for example. Or in the case of the social media companies, people didn't realize the extent to which they were being manipulated or being brought into addictive behavior in very much the same way that in the early days of cigarettes, people didn't realize that they were addictive. So I think um, how much personal choice we have, we actually have, uh, really matters a lot. And to the extent that companies are putting products out there or situations out there that are taking our choice away, they need to tell us. And I think that's where some of the transparency is falling short. Yes, and this is a fascinating area and, and um, one that you that you go into in some of your work, the ethical dilemma of a 23andMe type of service, right? So of course, on the surface, you go, hey, yeah, this would be fun to understand on my part this or part that or whatever and compare that to my friends and the rest of my family and my spouse and blah, blah, blah. And it's amazing having having watched Craig Ventner um, unveil the human genome to think that plus or minus 20 years later, your sister-in-law would give you a Christmas present that <laughs> allows the same thing to happen for you. However, when you sit there, and I haven't done any of these things, and the reason I haven't done them is real simple. You are paying them to allow them to monetize your DNA. And that's even scarier than allowing Facebook to monetize your family tree and all your photos and where you've been. So uh, how does your lens apply to uh, an emerging set of technologies like that? So 23andMe can be really great opportunity. It can be a way to this point of access to give more people access to some of this information. But one of the things that happens with 23andMe, um, to my point about important and irreparable consequences, is that you're given a lot of information about potentially a lot of different diseases or conditions. They're telling you all over their website that they're not a health company, but yet they're giving you information about medical matters. And once you know it, you can't unknow it. And I think all of us as human beings would, would agree that we can't know how we are going to react if we get some very strange news, like we have a genetic predisposition for a terrible disease. The added problem of 23andMe is that we may get information that affects other people. So one of the things I'm working on now is what happens if you find out that you have ge the genetic predisposition for an inheritable disease? Do you tell your child? You know, do you tell your spouse who, you know, with whom you've had this child? Because who, what kind of parent would like somebody to keep a secret like that from them? So it brings up all kinds of questions that we hadn't do thought you about. Have a, maybe if you were planning to have another child, do you go forward with that plan or not? If you know that you have a predisposition to some kind of condition that might make that child's life very difficult. Right. And there's a famous story in the UK about a woman whose father had Huntington's disease, and he was actually in prison for having killed her mother, which is not relevant at all to the story. But for whatever reason, the way the story is told, they, the media goes into that. But the issue there is another variant, which is what do the doctors do? This woman wanted to have a child and the doctor said, well, we've taken this oath. We owe him confidentiality. We can't tell his daughter. And he's refusing to tell his daughter because he wants her to go ahead and keep this baby. He's afraid she's going to have an abortion. And these doctors are caught in a position of, do I respect my medical oath of confidentiality to my patient? Or do I let this woman who it turns out actually did have the gene for Huntington's disease and did have a baby who ended up having it? And she's, you know, 
furious and on, on and on and on. So now medical professionals are being put in a difficult place, but it's happening with millions of people, because as you say, this is a Christmas present. This is advertised in People magazine. This is now, you know, we're, you know, at the, at the disposal of a lot of people and friends of mine are even saying their teenagers want to do this. So as parents, we're asking ourselves, you know, is this something we want our 14 year old to do? Yeah. And I haven't decided. So I haven't decided. I haven't done it. (laughs) But to your point about the data also, it's really one of the things that I really explored um, in writing the book was that once you give them your information, you know, who knows what happens to that if the company is sold? Uh, And who knows what happens to that when other companies pop up that do other things that can use that data? Or what happens if, you know, the police needs to get access to it and does, and, you know, you don't know what the, the, the company's terms of service basically say, you never know what's going to happen in the future. Well, and to your point, the other dimension of this is where is the company that buys this? So for right. example, you know, it's one thing that we may feel creepy about Facebook, but they're here in Silicon Valley. They're an American company. TikTok is a Chinese company and it scares the shit out of a lot of people, myself included. And so to your point, if a 23andMe or what's the an- Ancestry.com or any of these kinds of companies get acquired by a Chinese conglomerate or, or, or any, other, any other company in a country that, you know, we're not super stoked about <laughs> that way, then what happens? Yeah, it's also a bizarre thing that's happening with research. Because 23andMe allows you to give consent to participate in research. But unlike in academic medical centers or academic research centers or government research centers, where there are all kinds of protocols and all kinds of decision-making about what research gets done and what the priorities are, 23andMe is a company that is controlled by a management team and a board, and they can decide we're going to do research on the diseases that interest our own families. Um, so, you know, you're consenting to have your, uh, DNA used for research, but it's not like anybody is sort of stepping back and saying, uh, and considering the the research priorities in a way that, you know, other institutions might. And we're seeing this kind of blending of corporate and academic or corporate and government boundaries of research. But in the academic world, there are all kinds of research protocols and human subject review and all kinds of things that are required. Companies don't have to do that. Yes. Now, I'm also uh, fascinated to ask you, right now we're having a a ferocious debate about free speech and what one can and can't say and what constitutes inciting uh, violence or bad behavior of one sort or another. And it seems to me, uh, it, it used to be, Susan, that this, again, was something that felt clearer and the classic legal um, response to this that I remember as a layman is, well, yes, you can say whatever you want, but if you scream fire in a, um, in a movie theater, you're responsible for whatever uh, bad things happen if there's not a fire in that movie theater. And so, so free speech, the part that doesn't get talked about is the responsibility or the consequence of my free speech. And so given this is a very hot topic right now, uh, certainly in the United States, how, how do you look at free speech through uh, a lens of ethics? So it's a great question. And I'm so many people on the news shows, the mainstream news shows are using this, you know, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater example. And, you know, I remember that from law school 
And the world, as we've been talking about, the world has moved on. So how you can incite violence, you can incite violence on the other side of the planet. You don't have to be standing in the same theater as everybody else. I think we do need to draw some pretty clear lines here. Inciting violence is a criminal act. It's not free speech. Uh, and so when we are actually urging people to harm other people, you know, even if we're not in the same theater as they are, when that's clearly the intent, that is a criminal act. And so I'm all in favor of as much free speech and diversity of ideas. And as we talked about earlier, even offensive speech and giving people the chance to say things they regret and kind of backtrack and say, oh, I'm sorry, I, you know, you're right. I got that wrong. Or that was really over the top. But, you know, inciting violence. Um, it there that's a that's a pretty clear a pretty clear boundary and it can be context specific so if you are somebody in a position of authority i mean we're talking about the president of the united states right now irrespective of one's politics if you're in an, a position of authority more people are going to listen to you so the impact of your words are you know is greater and i think that needs to be taken into consideration as well and also the the repetition you know, um, the is it, is it a one-off thing or is it that you're really sort of developing a campaign toward violence? Yeah, it's interesting. So, so who's doing the speaking matters? Who's doing the speaking matters a lot because it, it matters to how many people are listening to them. It matters, you know, authority, right? But also celebrity matters. Um, celebrity is, I talk about celebrity as one of the other drivers of the spreading of unethical behavior. And it can be the spreading of really positive behavior, but also celebrities can do things that all of a sudden everybody starts copying that are, you know, that are not so great. Hmm. So I'm somebody for whom on a reasonably regular basis, people say pretty shitty things to me on uh, social media. And from time to time, they threaten violence. When somebody on social media says they want to punch me in the face, how should I interpret that? I think if there is a credible threat that it's possible that the person would do it and that they really are going to try to execute on that, uh, then I think that's, you know, that's clearly inciting violence and you have to decide whether you think there's real risk to yourself or whether you think it's just language that is, um, that there's, that's not really what they mean, if that makes sense. So here's the interesting thing about that. If you had said that to me 500 days ago, I would have said, yeah, that makes total sense to me. But 500 days ago, one of my best friends was attacked at 3 a.m. in his house and murdered by four men. And so I live in a different world now. And so I view risk differently. I had a situation recently, for example, I came home and there were some, they looked to be in their early 20s. Uh, three, uh, I'll call them kids, uh, two guys and a gal. And they were flying a drone in our neighborhood. And they were clearly not from here. I'd never seen them before. And they, I, I live in a town where you can almost always tell who's a local and who's not. Okay. Uh, you know, sometimes you're wrong. But anyway, as I drove down my driveway and got out of my car, they followed me with the drone. And so I came down my driveway and I made it very clear to them that they need to take that drone. And they need to take it down, down now. And they said to me, they weren't going to do it. And they kept it flying. And I got pretty aggressive with them. And I called 911 when they wouldn't do it. Now you could say, Hey, look, these were probably exactly what they looked like, which is a bunch of kids coming over for a day at the beach, being dumb shits with their drone. There's a 99% chance that's true. 
But I live in a different world than most people live. And so I don't know if that's true. The four men that killed my brother from another mother were all in their early 20s. And so are these kids stalking my house? Are they stalking houses in the neighborhood? Are they taking video to see who's doing what and to just trying to decide who they're going to rob or kill? I don't know what they're doing, which is why I did what I did and why I called the cops. And so I guess my point is sort of back to, do we really know what's more risky, being in the car or being in the plane, right? And so on social media, when somebody says to me, uh, they want to pick a, they want to have a fight with me, right? In the past, I'd go, ah, fuck you. Who gives a shit? Now, now I'm somebody who can handle myself and, uh, you know, without getting into specifics, my place is a bad place to break into. But in general, this is not something you want to be having happen in your life. And I guess my question is, how do we evaluate risk in this world when the point is, it's very hard to know. Were these idiots with a drone just fooling around or were they figuring out who to rob and kill? So first of all, let me just say, I'm so sorry to hear about your friend. I mean, that's just tragic and, and completely, completely unacceptable that we live in a society where that happens. We, the problem is that, you know, to the point about the world changing is that people can access you through social media who never would have been able to before. So one criterion that I use, and I use it similarly when I'm working in organizations, NGOs, or corporations, when we're talking about bullying and harassment and all that, is how personal is it? You know, are we threatening an individual politician or a group of politicians? Are we threatening an individual entertainer or leader? I think that's one thing to take seriously. The second thing is nobody deserves to have threats like that uh, happen in any way. And I think we need to look at the social media policies and determine whether that kind of a threat is acceptable under the social media policies. In my view, if the social media policies don't ban that, they should. And these kinds of um, users of social media should be reported and should be eliminated from the platforms. That That is, you know, at the very least, it's bullying and harassment and possibly more. As you say, it's hard to know. But I agree with you. We're in a world where we just don't know. And because because so many people are accessible in ways that they never were before. I mean, you mentioned two techie ways, drones and social media. Why would you take the risk? You know, there's no uh, particular age indicator or, um, you know, physical characteristic indicator or time of day indicator that you're going to be more or less at risk of this particular situation you described. So I, I don't know why you would take the risk. Um, and I don't think that what you just described is should be considered tolerable on social media platforms. Well, and so this is interesting. Where where do we draw the lines, right? I'm If somebody picks a fight with me in a way that I think is inappropriate, I'm going to tell them to go stick it. And I'm going to tell them in no uncertain terms. And I'm going to use words that some people find offensive. Now, I've never threatened anybody on social media, ever. And I never have in person either. Um, and so, you know, you hear this term that is sort of an interesting term that that sort of fires my bullshit meter. But, you know, may, maybe it shouldn't. Microaggressions. There was this gal recently who came out and quit from Salesforce and she published her resignation letter on social media. And she said that one of the reasons she was leaving was, was she s suffered from microaggressions. At, at Salesforce. And, and when I tell somebody to go F themselves on social media, 
Is that a microaggression or what is a microaggression? And are they things that we should pay attention to or are they complete, you know, what George Carlin called the pussification of America? You know, I think this is a really complicated question and it's one that comes up in universities and it's one that comes up in a lot of places. I think it's, there's a combination. I think there's certain language and certain behaviors that can be low grade, but when repeated, extremely offensive or extremely uncomfortable in an office environment. So it can be, um, you know, certain, it can be looks, it can be something even like occasionally, you know, accidentally, so to speak, deleting someone from an email chain. So they're kind of missing the meeting here and there. It can mean, um, you know, occasional comments, but I think we have to sort of get a balance between what is unacceptable behavior, what is bullying and harassment and racism and uh, homophobia and all these things that are completely unacceptable. And on the other hand, not being willing to have a conversation where you say to someone, you know, you said X and that really offended me and you probably didn't mean it that way, but I just kind of wanted to point it out to you. And then we move on and hopefully the person says, you know, all right, I won't do it again, or, or, you know, or sorry, I didn't realize or whatever, but we're in a situation in this, you know, this kind of gotcha culture. And I think it's incredibly dangerous because what it's going to lead to is people are afraid to say anything. So there's a balance between completely unacceptable behaviors and words and sort of not giving any, giving people a chance to kind of recognize that maybe they needed to learn something and change their ways is to your earlier point. Yes. And on this one, I try to be tethered to principles. And so there are words that I used to use that I don't use anymore. Right. We as a society have evolved. I, I never thought they were, you know, a, a simple example is what now we refer to as the R word. You know, when I was a kid, if you flubbed the ball at third base, we called you that. It had no, it, it was not directed at people who had any kind of physical or mental uh, a challenge or, or or what today we call, which is a term I love differently. And it had nothing to do with any of that. Right. And of course today uh, I've been educated. We don't say that word anymore. And so I've done my utmost to delete it from my vocabulary. The same thing is true of the F word. We called people that when we were kid, not the F word, F word, but the F word as uh, pointed at people in the LGBT community. But when I was a kid, I knew that word long before I knew people were even gay. It was just, again, if you were, it was sort of a, for a sissy kind of a word, right? Well, I would never use that word today. And so we have all evolved, the cultures evolved, and, and, and we learn things along the way. And, and sort of the true north on this one that I've tried to be tethered to is, if it affects a group of people, if it's targeted at a group of people, that group of people should be able to decide what they want to be called and what they deem as offensive and not offensive. I agree with that. That's sort of the way I think about it because your name is Susan. Well, you've chosen to be called Susan. So I respect that's your name and I call you Susan because uh, you've chosen that or well, you were given that name and you've chosen to keep it. Great. So I respect that decision. To me, it's almost as simple as that. What's different is, you know, I could tell somebody to go F themselves if I think they're being uh, uh, an idiot with me and, and not being respectful of me. Listen, I'm an old fighter. You pick a fight. I'm going to fight back. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. And if you want to call that a microaggression, you can stick it up your hoo hoo. <laughs> but that's, but that's, that's you know, my but, principle. But also you're probably choosing to whom you would say that. 
right? I mean, you know, so, but the other thing I think we lose track of is um, we have organizations that are overall committed and doing a lot and investing a lot in trying to evolve, to use your earlier word, and in trying to keep up with the vocabulary and in trying to consult with the groups who are affected by vocabulary and ask them what their view is and to respect their views. And so when you have an organization of tens of thousands of people, or you have a very large company, global company like Salesforce, not every person in that company is going to behave well. Not every person in that company is going to be sensitive or thoughtful um, or you know, even respect the company's codes of conduct. And so I think we also need to be careful that we don't just generalize and say the company is terrible because there are a couple of bad actors. No ethics in organizations, no compliance even, can prevent intentional wrongdoing or can prevent the occasional insensitive idiot, for lack of a better way to put it. So I think we need to all just kind of, you know, the world is filled with all kinds of people. And I think what's more important in terms of being an employee is what is the leadership saying? What are they actually doing? How much of an effort, you know, what is the data about gender pay gaps? You know, what are they saying is acceptable or not? How much listening is going on and how much evolving is going on? Not, you know, do I happen to have two people in my department who offended me? I, I don't know what you, what you think of that, but. I, I, I think it's a complex thing. I think on one hand, we ha- we can't get to a place where we're so, we have to be so careful. I'll, I'll give you a simple example. I was a a CMO of a public company when uh, the the new laws came into California that companies of a certain size on a, I forget how often it was, but I I think it might've been every other year had to do sexual harassment training. And, And we had to learn all these things and so forth and so on. You went to class and you did all this stuff. And, you know, we got taught that there are executives in California who've been prosecuted, found guilty of sexual harassment. You sort of mentioned it earlier for the way they look at women. And so the the sort of guidelines we were given at the time is essentially you have to be very, very careful, particularly as a man. Uh, men are uh, guilty until proven innocent in the state of California. This is what this sort of instructor told us as it relates to uh, sexual harassment claim, particularly when it's a member, uh, when it's somebody who is uh, lower down in the org chart or, or in your organization whose career you directly influence, you're essentially guilty uh, at the start. And so they gave us all these guidelines around things that we should and shouldn't do. Well, one of them is you shouldn't touch your fellow employees. Okay. Well, professor, I'm a hugger. I was raised by a single mother. And I'm a physical person. I have been my whole life. And you know what? And I hug women and men just the same. And on one hand, I'm respectful of people's space back when we could hug people. <laughs> and you, you, you get a, you understand from people, there are certain people you, that don't want you in their physical space. It becomes very clear. And there are certain people that a hug at work is fine. And I think the vast majority of people, male and female, understand the difference between a friendly hug and uh, and if they're open to it, they find it welcoming. And the difference between somebody who's a fucking creep. 99.9% of us know that. And most of us understand how to sort of respect people's personal space. And you get a, you get a feeling. Um, and so I made a decision, despite the explicit career uh, risk that I was told that I was taking, 
that I was going to continue to be myself. And I've never had a problem with this. But I realize, strict to the instruction I was given, I was making a big mistake. Well, I think, you know, I think one of the things is that you're very clear, um, you know, just hearing you speak about it, you're very clear about what the intent is. And I'm sure you're very clear when you're behaving with people. The, the fact is, though, that sexual harassment and sexual assault even is far more prevalent in companies than we realize. And I see a lot of it behind the scenes. And a lot of it doesn't get reported as statistics. And it is one of those binary things. It's just not acceptable. And so companies, you're absolutely right that some of it is a response to the potential legal liability and reputational risk in the same way you talked about the risk factors in a prospectus earlier. But some of it is real. And unfortunately, it's just really hard to get that balance right. And the only way to really prevent the creeps, as you called it, is just to have these very, very clear guidelines. Now, unfortunately, the training is often not that effective. It's, you know, sometimes it's more an exercise in taxonomy. It's like, this happened and what would you call it? And I keep telling companies, why do you need to give people a vocabulary lesson, right? The point is, how do you behave and, you know, and where are the boundaries and what might you not think of that you should be thinking of? Um, so the training isn't all that effective, but it's hard because very well-meaning people are caught up in the same rules. And unfortunately, there just doesn't seem to be a way around it. And so, you know, and this may be a terrible thing to say, feel free to kick me under the table, so to speak. But, you know, there's that old line about, well, uh, I can't define pornography, but I sure know it when I see it. Right. We all know the difference between uh, naked people in art and naked people in porn. We know it. And it would be very hard, at least for me, to write down how you would know that. And so there used to be this thing in the law called the reasonable person test, right? That in this circumstance, given what we know about whatever the situation was, what would a reasonable person do and or what would a reasonable person and sort of interpret the situation to have been? And so have we gone to a place now, Professor, where sort of the reasonable person test is out the window and we have to be prescriptive at a very detailed level because of that? I think so in this case and for the following reason. It's not so much about whether somebody knows what they're doing is wrong. These people, for by and large, people who are really committing, especially serial sexual harassment or assault, they're well aware that it's wrong, but they're doing it anyway. Sometimes they're doing it anyway because they can get away with it because, as you've said, there's a power imbalance but I've seen all combinations of seniority, uh, all combinations of gender identity. So it's not necessarily only, you know, the CEO and somebody 64 layers below. But the problem with this is that by and large, it is intentional wrongdoing. If you were to ask the people who are committing these behaviors, they know it's wrong. And by the way, one of the reasons they know it's wrong is that they've all had to go through training. So, so in point of fact, if I hear what you're saying, you're saying, hey, Lockhead, look, the problem isn't the coworker who at the at the holiday party had an extra glass of wine and maybe hugged you a little too longer than they should have, but really didn't mean anything by it. Maybe you didn't love it, but whatever. That's not the problem. The problem is intentional assholes who are doing this purposely for one reason or another, and they're adversely affecting people psychologically and adversely affecting their careers with plus or minus an intent to do so. 
Right. I mean, I think both are a problem in the sense that, you know, when you're in a corporate environment, and I tell people all the time, you know, the corporate holiday party, the offsite, these are, these are not, people say, well, what about business social? And I say, you know, we'll drop the social and you'll get your answer, right? These are business events. So the bottom line is, yes, most of it is intentional in the sense that people are well aware of what they're doing. But even if they're not, and certainly if they're not because they've had a couple of drinks, they're still responsible for their behavior. And that doesn't mean it's not frustrating for the people who really are clear about what's just a, you know, a friendly hug and what would have been, you know, perfectly even welcomed by a lot of people. It's just very hard in an environment, particularly a large corporate environment, to have different rules for different people because you just don't know who's going to use what in what way. So the bottom line is we've gotten to a place on this this one specifically where we have to be very detailed, very uh, descriptive, prescriptive around the do's and don'ts. And whether we like it or not, that's what we got to do. We do. And it's not just in this particular case, it's not just the bum covering thing we talked about with the risk factors. It's because there really are people who are harmed. And this is, you know, I would just say as somebody who works behind the scenes in organizations, including in global NGOs that are working in, you know, places where there is a terrible power imbalance, um, where the beneficiaries of these NGOs really have no other option for food or medicine or, or medical care. Um, it, unfortunately, you know, these, this, it's a real issue. Got it. Well, Susan, I could clearly talk to you about this topic for a long time. I find it fascinating and I, I find it incredibly important. And I don't know that it wasn't always important. It probably always was, but somehow your field of work feels like it may be more important now than, than in a long time. Well, like I said, I think the consequences of what we do can, can spread much further um, and can be much greater than ever before in part because of technology. Yes. Now, is there anything else you would like to touch on before we wrap uh, doctor? No, just to say thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure being here. And and I really am committed to this mission of democratizing ethics. And so I, I welcome a continuing conversation about ideas about how to do that. Well, I'd love to have you back. It's a fascinating and important topic. And one of the things I love, maybe I'll just touch on this, about what you your work and one of the things you say is the connection between transparency and ethics it's interesting. We just recently had um, uh, Dr. Avi Loeb on um, the podcast, and he is the Harvard astronomer who declared that um, this this thing that came came into our solar system in 2017 was actually an alien craft. And he's gotten a lot of flack for it. And he proposed something that I've been thinking about ever since uh, he and I spoke and I read his book which is the paradigm in science for a long time has been we, we're not going to declare it's so until we can sort of prove completely that it's so. And what he's saying is, you know, I can't prove that this is an alien craft, but I can prove that it's nothing that we've ever seen before. And it's the first thing that we know of that came from outside the solar system, came and hung out with us and then left and went back out of the solar system. So given it's nothing that we've seen before until we can prove it's not an alien craft, it's an alien craft. And that's a different mindset than before we can say it's an alien craft. We have to prove it's an alien craft. 
And his perspective on why he's done that is around this notion of transparency. He says that people will get more engaged with science if we let them into the sausage making, if we let them see through the process. He said, look, we might discover at some point that I'm wrong. Well, great. That's what science is about. It's about what science is. Yeah. And so what I almost, and I know this might sound crazy, but I, what I almost hear you saying on the discussion of democratizing ethics is ethics do evolve. And if we're not sort of talking about them and sort of grappling with them, particularly all this gray area, which as you say, is expanding. If we don't grapple with them in a transparent way, um, how are we ever going to get to a place that says, well, on this type of topic, we should behave this way. And on the, am I making any sense here, doctor? You're making complete sense. And let me just say that was a fantastic podcast episode. I listened to it and I thought it was amazing. And he's clearly extraordinary. And I'm a hundred percent with him about how he is trying to shift the way people look at science. And it's exactly what I'm trying to do with ethics. I'm trying to say, look, you know, I don't know exactly where this is going to go, whether it's, as I said earlier, what's going to happen with a bot therapist, you know, whether that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing, or whether, you know, the robot Sophia, who's a humanoid robot should run for president someday. What I know is that many more people should have a voice in this, should grapple with it, to use your word, should get in the arena with me. And you don't have to have a PhD uh, and you don't, you know, and you don't have to have any particular training and we all have a responsibility to have these conversations in that way of, you know, we've never seen this before, but, you know, we need to figure out what that means. Um, so thank you for that analogy. That's, I thought, again, that was a, just a terrific episode. Well, thank you. And, 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 and I wanted to sort of share that with you to see if you thought I was connecting the same dot that essentially what you're doing, what he's doing for science, you're trying to do with ethics. hundred percent. And in that regard... A, a lawyer, a PhD professor can have a conversation with a high school dropout for an hour and a half or so about <laughs> ethics. <laughs> uh, well, Susan, thank you so much. Uh, you're extraordinary. I deeply, deeply appreciate your time and um, uh, you're welcome back anytime. Oh, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure and such a privilege. Stay legendary, my friend. Take care. Well, there she is. Dr. Susan Leoto, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you did, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this oddcast with people you love. Now, in times like these, being flexible and adaptable is the most important thing to not just survive and thrive. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. You see, with NetSuite, the flexibility is built in. With NetSuite, you can scale up, you can spin off, you can adopt and modify business models whenever you need to. NetSuite's flexibility lets you do it all. There's a reason 63% of recent tech IPO companies run NetSuite. If you want to build a legendary foundation for your business, go to netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And legendary businesses are digital businesses. And if the last 12 months have taught us anything, they've taught us there is an accelerated need for digital transformation. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Check out splunk.com slash D2E. With Splunk, you can build a more resilient organization, accelerate your cloud-driven transformation, 
and use data as a strategic advantage. So if you want to thrive in the data age, visit Splunk.com slash D2E. All right. We would like to thank the legendary uh, Dr. Susan Leoto. Thank you so much. Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, you're going to love her new book. It's called The Power of Ethics. Check it out wherever you get legendary books. <laughs> also, I need to remind you that uh, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Uh, our friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. Uh, if you want to learn how to scale you, my friends at Bottleneck.online are the, leader, the leaders in dedicated distant assistance. If you need a legendary assistant, who can help you extend you, but is nowhere near you, go to bottleneck.online today. My friends at Otternet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. And why not consider moving some of your money to black-owned banks in what's called a justice deposit? You see, the more money black banks have in deposits, the more money they have to lend. And uh, every loan is a dream coming true. Um, we are produced and edited by the GOAT himself, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. And the passing lane is the left lane. Get out of it unless you're going fast. <laughs> Listen to the Tragically Hip. Lyle Lovett was right. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Uh, please stay safe. Take good care of each other. Thank you so much for the gift of your time. And until we're together again, <laughs> stay legendary. And of course, follow your different. <laughs>